Welcome to day 100 of The Story That Changes Everything. Our readings for today begin our journey through the books of 1st and 2nd Kings. Our readings for today are 1st Kings chapters 1 through 3 and Psalm 42. Here's some thoughts to guide your reading for today. The book of 1st Kings picks up the succession narrative that ended with 2nd Samuel chapter 20. Chapter 1 opens with King David still alive but weakening quickly. The point of the first four verses that include the young and beautiful Abishag is that David is growing frail, cold, and his virility is gone. Taking advantage of the moment, Adonijah, the oldest son of David remaining after the deaths of Amnon and Absalom, Adonijah forms an alliance with the military leader Joab and the priest Abiathar. Adonijah throws a huge feast and invites his younger brothers and the key people of Judah to come. But he intentionally did not invite the prophet Nathan, Benaiah, the head of David's bodyguard, and Solomon. This is not a good sign, and Nathan knows it. If David dies and Adonijah proclaims himself successor to the throne, his first act will likely be the elimination of his rivals, and those not included on the banquet list are probably first in line. Nathan acts quickly, recruiting Bathsheba into his plan to have David name her son Solomon as king. It is interesting that both the mother of Adonijah, Haggith, and the mother of Solomon, Bathsheba, are mentioned frequently in the text. Some scholars think this may demonstrate that there was not just a rivalry between the brothers, Adonijah and Solomon, but a rivalry between their mothers, two of David's many wives, as well. It's also interesting to note that the root word of Haggith's name is the Hebrew word for feast, and the name Bathsheba means daughter of the oath. And both of these themes will be important in the story. Nathan tells Bathsheba to remind the aging David of his promise he made to Solomon to become king after him. The narrator is clear that David has made no promise to Adonijah. In fact, the text says he really has paid no attention to him at all. However, there's also no previous account of David promising the throne to Solomon either. In fact, the text seems to imply that Nathan and Bathsheba are trying to pull a fast one on the king like Rachel and the younger brother Jacob conspiring to gain the blessing from the blind and frail Isaac away from his son Esau, Nathan and Bathsheba are trying to gain the throne and very likely spare their own lives from the perhaps ever-growing senile David. The plan works, and David names Solomon as king and commands that he be anointed at once and the announcement of his ascent to the throne be made throughout the land. This word gets to the feast of Adonijah in a hurry, and the party comes to a screeching halt. Aware now that the tables have been irrevocably reversed, Adonijah runs to the holy place, grabs the horns of the altar, and refuses to let go until Solomon promises not to harm him. The chapter ends with Solomon granting his request on the condition that he behave himself. Chapter 2 opens with the dying David giving final words to Solomon. The first few verses contain commands very similar to those God gave to Joshua when he took the reins of leadership from Moses. Be strong and courageous. Be faithful to God's laws. In addition to this mandate and encouragement, David has some scores for Solomon to settle. One is with Joab, who, in the language of the text, brought blood guilt upon Israel and David's house by killing innocent people, namely Abner and Amasa, and maybe Absalom too. Also, David had promised Shammai, the cursor, that if he, David, was alive, he would not kill him by the sword. But that promise might not apply after he was dead. Adonijah puts Bathsheba up to asking Solomon to give Abishag, 
the woman given to David at the end of his life, to him as his wife. Now, this may be an honest request from Adonijah, but Solomon interprets it as a power play, a way to make some kind of connection to himself and his father and to royal power. The rest of the chapter reads like that scene from The Godfather when Michael Corleone settles all the family scores while he participates in a baptism as his nephew's godfather. First, Adonijah is killed by Benaiah. Then the priest, Abiathar, is exiled, thus ending the line of Eli as priest, as God promised way back in 1 Samuel. Fully aware of where this was going, Joab, like Adonijah in the previous chapter, runs to the holy place and grabs the horns of the altar. This time, it makes no difference to Solomon. He has Joab killed with a kind of prayer that his death would remove the blood guilt of Joab's killings from the house of David. And even Shammai is given an offer he can't refuse, but one he ends up failing to obey, and he dies too. A brief funny story about the death of Joab. An Old Testament scholar friend of mine, Marty Michelson, loves to tell a story about hearing a sermon on 1 Kings chapter 1, the text where Adonijah found safety, at least temporarily, by grabbing the horns of the altar. The point of the sermon my friend heard was that our modern altars at the front of the sanctuary are safe places to run down and come and grab onto God. Marty said, I didn't have the courage to say to the preacher afterwards, I'm glad you preached out of chapter 1 and not chapter 2, because if you had kept reading, you might discover that sometimes the altar is a place of safety, but other times it's a place where you might get struck down by the sword anyway. The moral of the story is keep reading, because if you're preaching through the Bible, what you said this week in chapter 1 may not work so well next week in chapter 2. The official reign of Solomon begins in chapter 3. Historians date the beginning of Solomon's kingship sometime between 970 or 960 BC and lasting until about 930 or 920 BC. Solomon will have many wives, but the first that is mentioned is the daughter of Pharaoh. This is certainly meant to be a statement about how much prestige and power Solomon and thus Israel had. The nation to whom they were previously enslaved is now making marriage treaties with them. However, It also may serve as the beginning of a foreshadowing of the mistakes Solomon will make as king. He will violate the five things kings were commanded not to do in Deuteronomy 17, and in many ways he will become more like Pharaoh than like the shepherd his father was called to be. The chapter contains two of the more famous stories about Solomon, his request to be given a discerning heart or wisdom, and his demonstration of that wisdom by judging rightly between the two disputing mothers. These stories are well known, and they demonstrate what Solomon and his kingship were at their very best. It won't last, but it's beautiful to witness it in the moment. One thing to notice in the text is that it's the first time in many chapters that God is narrated as active and speaking. God has talked about in previous chapters, and there are times in the story where God gets credit for something that happened. But this is the first time that God acts directly, and one of the characters in the story is attuned to the presence of God. Perhaps it's no coincidence that the high point of Solomon's story is connected to the awareness of Yahweh's presence and his work. The psalm for today, Psalm 42, opens with the beautiful words, Just like a deer that craves streams of water, my whole being craves for you, God. My whole being thirsts for God, for the living God. When will I come to see God's face? The psalmist gives us such a beautiful metaphor or image of what it means to desire and be hungry for the presence of God. 
I have a theologian friend who often remarks that rarely in the Gospels, when Jesus encounters a stranger, will Jesus ask the person, what do you believe, or what do you think, or what do you know? However, Jesus will often ask them, what do you want? What are you looking for? What are you seeking? My friend thinks this is instructive for us. It's not that beliefs or what we think in our heads is unimportant. It's just that what Jesus seems to be most concerned about is, what are we desiring? What are we seeking first? What are we hungering and thirsting for? I think part of what we love about the story of Solomon in the holy place at Gibeon is that when God asks Solomon what he wants, what he might wish for, Solomon doesn't ask for power or wealth, but he gets the right answer. He wants to know God and have a heart that discerns God's wisdom. It's a beautiful story and an important truth. So read these chapters carefully, looking for things you've never seen before. Journal your thoughts, prayers, and questions, and wrestle with this question today. What do you want? The story continues tomorrow with 1 Kings chapters 4 through 6. I'll talk to you tomorrow.